71 members of the Sanhedrin gathered, already ready for the trial, um, already assembled, ready to go. It was illegal because the trial should have been held during the day because that was the rule, that was the law. But instead, this was held at night. And as a capital case where someone was potentially going to be sentenced to death, the trial should have been held uh, at the temple rather than Caiaphas's house. And it, again, should have been during the day uh, and not at night. And when you consider all that was brought against Jesus and the, the false witnesses and all of the stories that had been put together and this plan and this agenda at the hands of, of wicked men that just you know, were trying to get rid of someone that was a threat to their position and to their power, everything stood against Jesus. And when you look at it at face value in a human sense, everything looks like it's going wrong. You have an innocent man that is guilty of no crime who's being falsely accused and charged and ultimately going to be sentenced to death. And when he spoke those words, when Caiaphas said to him, I charge you under oath, answer us. Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? And when Jesus said, it is as you say, I am he. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Father. That sealed his fate. Because the moment he spoke those words, you know, that became the blasphemy and the charge that the religious leaders could find. And in a physical sense, Jesus was going to die at the hands of men that just wanted to get rid of someone who was innocent. But in a supernatural sense, God was orchestrating a plan that had been foretold centuries prior. Since the beginning, God was preparing a way for our sins to be redeemed and for Jesus to go to the cross. And it was going to be this, this plan that God was working out in, in order for us to be free. So we're going to pick up the story uh, with Peter. I want to take a step back and, and think about Peter again. Peter. You'll remember in the garden, uh, you know, Peter was, was brave and willing, willing to die for Jesus. But I'm not sure where he was on the way to Caiaphas' house. I don't know if he had heard that the trial was going to be held there. I'm not sure if he followed, at, you know, maybe at a distance covertly as the guards led Jesus to Caiaphas' palace but he made his way there and he arrived and the scriptures tell us that he sat amongst the guards. He sat in sort of that, that space where he would have melted in you know, with the crowds and others that had gathered there because they were wanting to see this Jesus, this person that was so controversial, so hyped up. And obviously because he was going to be put on trial, they wanted to be there to see what was happening. And, and I try to imagine Peter as he sat there watching the proceedings, as he sat in the crowd just listening and as each false testimony came forward, did Peter sit and say to himself, that is not true. That is just not true. I know that that is false. I know that these are lies. And they continued, and, and you know, he must have been on the edge of his seat thinking to himself, Jesus, please don't say anything. Don't implicate yourself. Don't say a word. Maybe you'll get out of this mess. And I can only imagine Peter's heart as he listened to all of this come against his Lord and for him to remain silent, and then those fateful words when he spoke and said, yes, I am the Christ. It is as you say. And in that moment, I wonder if Peter's heart sank. Because in that moment, his friend, his Lord, right, his Messiah, he knew what was, was going to die. And the ache of that must have been so intense. And so there Peter is, you know, just heart failing because of what's going on. And the scriptures tell us that he appeared in the courtyard after. So at some point he makes his way out. And I imagine after a trial, there's typically the post-trial buzz, 
right? You know, you know, you know, when you see a trial in the news and the reporters are there and everybody's getting interviews and there's all kinds of people talking about what happened and what did you think of this? And you can just imagine that scene in the courtyard area as the people milled around, fires lit for them to stay warm. And there was Peter warming himself by one of the fires and a young servant girl came and said, I know you. <laughs> you were with the Galilean. You're one of his. And Peter said, no, I don't know the man. He denied knowing Christ. And a short while later, by the outer gate to the courtyard, there he was again, perhaps by another fire, warming himself. And a person said, you're, you're the, yes, you were with him. You were one of his followers. And he said, I, I don't know the man. I don't know what you're talking about. You've got me wrong. And then finally, a third time, there were maybe a small crowd that said, you know, we hear it in your voice. Your accent gives you away. We know you're a Galilean. We know you were with Jesus. We've seen you in public with him. And he actually called down curses. He likely swore. And, you know, damn it, I don't know the man. <laughs> you know, like that's the reality of it. Like he would have called down curses upon, you know, this situation. And in the very moment that he denied Jesus that third time, the rooster crowed. And you'll remember that there was a time that Jesus was telling his disciples about what he was going to endure and where he was going to have to go and the fact that he would die at the hands of evil men. And Peter said to him, Lord, I will go with you wherever you go. I, I will go even to the point of death. And here, you know, Jesus said, you know, be careful of your words, Peter, but you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. And in that moment, the, the heartache that he must have felt you know, in that point where that betrayal was made known. And it says that he actually went out and he wept bitterly. And who of us wouldn't have wept bitterly in Peter's shoes? Considering the fact that we, we said we would die for you, Jesus, we'll go as far as it takes. And in the face of a servant girl and some others in the crowd after the trial, you know, there it was, the denial. And he wept. He was broken. And who of us wouldn't have done the same? Who of us perhaps also in the situation, would have said, I don't know the man. You know, you've got me mixed up with someone else. So the religious leaders, because of Jesus' words, they had everything they needed now to have him crucified. The one problem was they didn't have the, the authority to do it. They didn't have the legal authority to actually execute someone. So they had to go to Rome. Now that was a bit of a problem because they had to convince Rome that Jesus was a problem to Rome. Right? They couldn't simply go, hey, we have a religious system and we don't like the way this guy's doing things because he's kind of messing it up for our religion. Because Rome would have said, who gives a rip? He's no threat to us. You guys sort it out. So they had to come up with a little bit of a different approach. And that's why they went to Pilate, Pontius Pilate, who was a curator in that region. He would have been a very influential person. He was the governor of Judea. And he would have definitely you know, had some some clout in this whole situation, and he was there for Passover, which also seems convenient. Now, this was a key element in the process because, again, they could only get the execution approved by a Roman official. So they went to Pilate, and they were deceptive about it. They knew full well that a simple complaint about a rebel who was wrecking their religious system wasn't going to suffice, and so they had to come up with something better. So they came to Pilate, and they said, look, he is stirring up the crowds to rebel against Rome. He's stirring up the crowds to rebel. And in fact, Pilate, we've heard this man tell people not to pay their taxes to Caesar. 
Which again was a lie because when Jesus was questioned about taxes, he took a coin and he said, who's on the coin? Well, it's Caesar. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's when it came to your offerings. And so again, falsehoods you know, were put forward and, and here Pilate was listening to this. Now, you know, Pilate obviously understood that Jesus' claim to be a king was a different sort of claim. We understand that Pilate didn't think that Jesus was looking to take the Roman throne, right? There's always that threat, perhaps, but it was more of a, a claim at, in, a, in a bigger, grander scale and didn't necessarily affect you know, Rome and the position they held in Israel. But for Pilate, this mattered because if he didn't handle this properly, the people could riot. And if the people rioted, then that was a reflection of his leadership. If the people were out of control, then Caesar would have looked at Pilate and said, maybe we need a better guy in position because everything's out of control there in Judea, in, in Jerusalem, Galilee. So, yeah, you're out. We've got to get somebody else in. And so he couldn't, you know, didn't want to take that risk. And so basically they hurled their lies and all their insults, and Jesus was before Pilate, and we don't have time to get into all of the, the incredible conversation that was happening with Jesus and Pilate. But there was a point in the matter where Pilate was ready to pass the buck because there was this little bit of information that actually worked in his favor. He didn't really want to deal with Jesus. And when he found out that he was a Galilean, he realized he's out of my jurisdiction. I don't actually have to deal with him. So he sent Jesus to Herod. And Herod was in, was in town. And so Jesus was sent and taken to Herod's palace. And Pilate believed, okay, I dodged, I dodged that one. I don't have to deal with this guy. And so that was his out. Galilee was Herod's jurisdiction. And so he would send him off to someone else to handle the situation. Now, the passage, when Jesus went to Herod, Herod was one interesting dude. I, I mean, really, really bizarre. Just a, a, an interesting duck. So anyways, here's what happened when he went to Herod. Here we go, verse 6. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. As soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad. For he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and continued to accuse him. And then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him. They dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been enemies. So when Jesus showed up at Herod's, Herod was over the moon excited because he had wanted to get a personal glimpse of this Jesus. And, and he wanted to see him entertain, right? He wanted to see him perform a miracle, do something that's going to please me today is what Herod's attitude was. And Jesus was not there to entertain, and Jesus remained silent. And when Herod couldn't get anything out of him, he sent him back to Pilate after mocking him, dressing him in a mock robe, sending him back you know, to, to Pontius, Pilate. And when Jesus returned, Pilate's heart must have sank because he didn't want anything to do with him. And in fact, Pilate's wife had said to, to him, have nothing to do with this man. In a dream, I've been troubled by him. Just 
you know, let it, let it go, don't get involved, is what she was saying, because she had this dream that just troubled her greatly because of Jesus and the fact that this was a, a very unique individual. So Pilate again thought about how he could get out of this, and he figured out another way. See, it was custom during the, the Feast of Passover that a prisoner would be released. And Pilate thought to himself, well, look, if, if we go and we get one of the worst dudes that we have in prison, and we just say to the crowds, we're going you know, to release someone today, they're not going to release Barabbas, who the Gospels tell us was stirring up you know, all kinds of riots, and he was a murderer. So Pilate put Barabbas here and Jesus here, and he figured for sure the crowd was going to say, okay, if you're releasing someone, then release Jesus. Please don't let Barabbas out in the streets. That's what Pilate thought. But when Barabbas was put forward, and Pilate knowing full well Jesus was an innocent man with absolutely no accusation that was going to stick, he put Barabbas forward to the crowd, and the crowd said, give us Barabbas, what do you want me to do with Jesus? Crucify him. Crucify him. And we can only imagine what Pilate thought in that moment. Oh, man, you know, thinking that this is going to appease the crowd. We're going to let Barabbas go and, uh, you know, or let Jesus go and Barabbas is going to stay in prison. But that wasn't the case. And so he was still stuck. And he didn't know what to do. But he realized if he didn't do what the crowd wanted, he was facing a potential riot. And so in that moment, Pilate said, I, I find no fault with this man. And symbolically, he went and he washed his hands before the people and he told them and he said, this man's blood is not on my hands. And recklessly, the crowd said, his blood be upon us and upon our children. They were so willing to see him crucified that call curses upon us and upon the generations that come after us. We're okay with that. We just want to see him killed. We want to see him crucified. And again, at a human level, it is so wrong. And it should utterly break our hearts to consider that a, a, an innocent man was, was just completely destroyed you know, through execution on a Roman cross. But God is at work, and there's an entirely different piece happening. But I want you to think for a moment about some of the characters Think of Peter. Uh, maybe, maybe you're like Peter, willing to go to just the end with Jesus, willing to die, but in that moment of you know, pressure, you betray. Maybe you're like the religious leaders who are so bent on their position and their power and their way of life, and Jesus just kind of threatens that, and you don't want anything to do with him as a result. Maybe you're like Pilate. You're just afraid. Jesus is calling, giving opportunity for you to step into a greater story, but you, again, you kind of keep him at arm's length out of fear. Maybe you're like Herod, where Jesus has become the entertainer to you, that when we gather and we sing and we, you know, we, we engage in all sorts of Christian activities and, and gatherings, and not that they're bad things, but maybe Jesus has just become someone that you're entertained by. Or maybe you're like the crowds, who only days earlier we're waving palm branches as Jesus entered Jerusalem, saying he's our Messiah, Hosanna in the highest. And days later, yelling to Pilate, crucify him. Or maybe you're like John Bryan, who's all of the above. Maybe you're like me, who has been so self-righteous at times that I've missed what God wants to do. 
who has been in places of challenge where I've disassociated myself with Jesus because it wasn't convenient, you know, to walk with him in those moments. Or like the crowd that, you know, I praise him one day, the next day I'm not interested. Or I'm like Peter, <laughs> you know, I, Lord, I'm on my hands and knees before you. I want to follow you. And then in those moments I, I take a step back because of what it might cost me. Maybe you're like me. And in reality, that's who I would be ultimately, if it wasn't for God's grace and for the power of his spirit that reaches into my heart and shapes me in a different way, that I can understand who Jesus is and what it actually looks like, you know, to give my life to him and to live in him and for him. And I don't get it right all the time. Far from it. But that's where grace comes in. So I'm not sure who you identify with this morning, maybe more than one of those characters. Um, but I want to encourage you and challenge you to consider you know, where you stand right now, where, where you sit, and what it looks like to press in if you're at a place where you're keeping him at arm's length. When I was 13 years old, uh, began, uh, I, I wanted nothing to do with church. I wanted nothing to do with God. I was not interested at all. In fact, I fought my mom every single Sunday about going to church. Hated it with a passion. I just can't even put into words how much I didn't want to go. And uh, we started attending a church in 14, 15, still not interested. I played the game, of course, because on Sunday I was polite, my brother was polite, and people would say to my parents all the time, your boys are such gentlemen, you know, they're, they're such good boys, you know. And, and we'd go to school and just be idiots and jerks and, you know, do whatever and didn't care. I, in fact, I remember being at Muskoka Woods for a, a retreat and some guys in my cabin, we actually dug in like minus 500 weather dug into the snow to try and hide so we didn't have to go to the chapel that night. Like, that's how, that's where I was at. And some leader from another group happened to catch us, forced us into the chapel, and I can still remember this day that it was Duffy Robbins who spoke, and he spoke on the armor of God, and he spoke on the story of Abraham, and he spoke about how if you want to really know this Jesus, he can impact your life in ways that you can't understand. And it was there that, you know, I really began to stir and God started to work in me. And when I was 16 years old, on the floor of Cops Coliseum in Hamilton, Ontario, I listened to a guy talking about Jesus. And when he invited people to come forward, I got out of my seat and I went down and I just said, God, if you are real and you have a plan for my life, I need to know what it is. And that's where the journey really began for me. I don't have it all figured out. But man, I am so glad I've experienced the, the love of the living God. So back to Peter. Peter stood warming himself by a fire where he had denied Christ. He had stepped away from his Lord, disassociating with him. But that's not the end of Peter's story. It was a time after uh, the resurrection that Jesus had appeared and I believe it was the third time he appeared to the disciples. He was on the beach, and there was a fire, and they were coming in on the boat, and they saw him, and Peter jumped out of the boat and sort of sloshed through the, the shallow waters to get to him, and they had breakfast with Jesus. And in that moment after breakfast, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? And yes, Lord, you know I love you. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Then feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Lord, you know I love you, then, then feed my lambs. And, and the reality was Jesus was restoring Peter. And after that interchange, three times he asked him, do you love me? Perhaps for the three, 
you know, denials, he said to Peter, follow me. And Peter followed. And so which fire are you next to right now? Are you at a fire warming yourself, stepping, you know, away towards Jesus when it's convenient, right? Or are you at a fire where you're just enjoying his presence, walking with him, willing to follow? Where are you today? Which fire are you closest to? Who are you identifying with when it comes to the story? Because regardless of where you are, the grace of God can push through. I'm telling you, can push through anything to draw you to him. So I'd like to pray again this morning. And again, I invite you that if you are in a space that you're saying, Lord, I identify with someone here. You know, you know my heart, God. And right now, I'm not walking with you. And I just... Or I need to know you more. I, I've been distant. My, my relationship is cold. I, you know, whatever that looks like for you. Or if you're in the space where you've never met him and you're standing today to say, I want to know you today, then I, I just invite you to stand where you are as I pray. So I'll give a few seconds. If you'd like to stand, just symbolizing that, yes, Lord, I need to figure some things out and I want to walk with you. I invite you to stand and, and I'll close off in prayer. God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the cross and the journey that Jesus was willing to take. God, thank you for grace and mercy that even when we find ourselves by that fire of denial, just disassociation, laziness, whatever that looks like, thank you that you seek to restore us and you draw us close to you. May you bless this group. May you bless those that are desiring more and that intimacy with you. May you kindle that fire in their spirits. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, tomorrow, um, we're going to dive into the cross, and there is going to be a bit of a graphic nature uh, to that. Um, there's really no way to get around that. So just want to give you a heads up that, you know, there, there is elements tomorrow that are pretty heavy, um, but we invite you back. And if you've got a friend that you just think, hey, I'd love to invite my friend to come and, and connect in this journey, then tomorrow would be a great day too. Um, yeah, junior girls, uh, senior girls meeting today for Driven in the SLC. Senior guys tomorrow for the Foundry. We love you guys. Uh, we love you. We just are so glad you're here. We're so blessed to be allowed to come into your life and, and just journey with you. Um, come check us out. Come visit if you want to chat. But have an awesome day. God bless.